Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It's page 1050 in the Church Bible, and it's titled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, our summer series is called Summer Stories. And usually when we look at um, passages such as the one we have before us this evening, we call them parables. And uh, Jesus told many parables, stories illustrating a, uh, everyday stories illustrating a spiritual point. But there are some people, um, including those as illustrious as John Calvin himself, who actually wonder whether this is a parable at all or if it's, tr or if it's a true story, because it is, after all, the only story told by Jesus where a character is given a name. Now, there's an ancient tradition uh, by which the rich man has a name as well, has, has a name as well, namely Dives, although Dives simply means uh, rich in Latin. But that's led to this uh, story sometimes being described as the story of Dives and Lazarus, um, and that gave rise to an English folk song. Um, we're having a lot of uh, Vaughan Williams influence in this evening's music, I should say. The uh, first hymn we sung, uh, my Song is Love Unknown, that particular tune uh, was written by a gentleman called John Ireland on the back of a napkin while he was having lunch with Rafe Vaughan-Williams. If you don't know who he was, by the way, uh, Vaughan-Williams was a, um, an early 20th century English composer. Amongst many, many other things that he did, um, he was the editor of the English hymnary. Uh, he invited John Ireland to um, write a tune to um, a, that 17th century poem by Samuel Crosman, and uh, that's what he came up with on the back of his napkin. But anyway, I digress a little already, and I mustn't do that. The English folk song Dives and Lazarus um, was picked up by Vaughan Williams as he was riding around um, uh, 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 Sussex collecting tunes, and made, uh, he encountered it in a village called Kingsfold, um, just outside Horsham in um, West Sussex nowadays. And um, uh, he made it into the hymn tune Kingsfold, to which we will be singing our final hymn this evening as soon as I finish speaking. 
and I can sense already that some of you can't wait for that. But let's press on with the uh, let's press on with the uh, with, with with the rest of this passage. Now, of course, anybody who's at all familiar with the New Testament, let me just do this. I've already missed a couple. Oh dear. It works when we tested it earlier on. Where am I supposed to point it, Richard? No. Oh dear. Can I? Can we? Can, can we agree a symbol that when I do that, you move it on? Okay. We'll try and try and keep track of what I'm saying. Okay. I'll just concentrate on the text. Dear me. To anyone who's at all familiar with the New Testament, the name Lazarus resonates because of the account of a man named Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha of Bethany who was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Despite the coincidence that Lazarus in John chapter 11 was raised from the dead, and we have a reference right at the end of our passage this evening to somebody being raised from the dead and the effect that that would have upon uh, people's belief, there's no reason to believe that the Lazarus here, even if he was a real person, is the same Lazarus as the one referred to uh, in John chapter 11. The circumstances are just too different. Um, the name Lazarus is, in fact, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer, meaning one whom God helps. And we will, in fact, encounter somebody else with that name before we're done today. But as far as I can tell, the name Lazarus doesn't signify anything further in and of itself. By that, I mean the meaning of the name. So it may well be that, just as Steve Berry told us last week, when, that when Jesus told the parable of the talents or the parable of the miners, he had Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, at the back of his mind. It may well be that Jesus had a specific individual in mind when he told this story. As for how literally we can take it, um, are we really to believe that people in hell and people in heaven can have conversations with one another in the way that the passage um, describes from verse 23 onwards? That would be surprising. Um, but when Scripture speaks of heavenly things and when Jesus told of heavenly things, he tailored it and Scripture tailors itself to our level of understanding. And the mechanics of these things is not, I think, the main point that Jesus would have us learn from this passage. So what is the main point that Jesus would have us learn from this passage? Well, uh, next slide, please. Is it the idea that the poor go to heaven and that the rich go to hell, and that's all there is to it. To some people, it really is that simple. There's a particular stream in modern liberal Christianity that pretty much subscribed to that view, and which I encountered a lot when, in 1980s Wrexham, my interest in spiritual things had been kindled, and I was trying out various different churches and asking lots of questions and going around and um, really devouring everything that I could from anyone and anywhere who had something in the something to offer and uh, the idea which was in vogue among the liberal denominations was something called liberation theology essentially marxism with a thin christian veneer over it um, which had uh, which had which had taken root the fundamental idea was that the whole of the new testament essentially was just an allegory nothing more nor less than the, the, the than an allegory for the struggle of the proletariat over their capitalist oppressors and uh, this had, taken, had been taken on in a big way, particularly in some of the traditional Welsh denominations, uh, which I encountered a lot there, but also very much so amongst the Catholic Church of South America, I later learned. Now, it turns out that one of the most enthusiastic sponsors of this particular view was a man called Vladimir Mikhailovich Gundyaev. Photograph? There we are. 
who under the given name of Father Kirill was the Russian Orthodox Church's representative on the World Council of Churches from 1971 to 2009, um, supposedly subject to persecution back in the Soviet Union and therefore deriving some moral authority from that, he pushed these doctrines relentlessly, and as I mentioned earlier on, he found a particularly receptive hearing amongst Catholic churches in South American countries, particularly places like Colombia and Venezuela, and with um, um, certain liberal Protestant uh, denominations here in the West. Now, we now know that the whole of that time, Father Kirill was, in fact, a KGB agent. And uh, today, he's been promoted. Next picture. Um, today, he's Patriarch of Moscow, Supreme Head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Vladimir Putin's chief cheerleader for the war in the, in the Ukraine, because he's very keen to see the independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church <coughs> and Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church suppressed. Um, he is estimated to have a personal fortune of around about $8 billion and uh, is occasionally seen wearing the $30,000 Julian Crux's Swiss watch. So much for the roots of this idea. But the really important thing is, is it true? Now, if we move on, uh, next slide please. There's no doubt that scripture is scathing in its condemnation for those who become rich by swindling or by oppressing others. For example, at the beginning of James chapter 5, um, verses 1 to um, 6, we read these words. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And yet James does make it clear that when he writes these words, he has in mind specifically those whose wealth was gained dishonestly. He goes on to say, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, who does not resist you. And yet elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that it's possible to grow rich by legitimate means, and indeed it celebrates this, so long as our wealth and our comfort don't cause us to become proud and forget God or to be distracted from Him. For example, it's worth reading another passage. Um, here we are. Uh, which I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, it's a longer reading. You might want to turn to it if you want to, but you needn't. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read it here. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 18, from the time when the Lord is bringing Israel into the promised land. For, your Lord, for, the, for the Lord, your God, is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out into the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you can eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Now, just pausing there, I find that very interesting because we tend to think of ancient Israel as having been a very simple agricultural economy. But in fact, we've just read there was mining, there was quarrying, and if you're quarrying iron ore and copper ore, then you need to smelt it, which means that there would be 
uh, um, a, a degree of organization in order to carry out those activities, what we'd call industry as well. So a surprisingly diverse economy, even at that early stage in Israel's history. Moving on, verse 10 of um, this chapter of Deuteronomy. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. But take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So you see, the rest of Scripture doesn't really give us any um, grounds at all to suspect wealth in and of itself as being something which is incompatible with godliness. The important thing is that it is one legitimately that we give thanks for it and recognize him as the source of it. And indeed, in Exodus chapter 23, you needn't turn to it, um, uh, the Israelites are actually enjoined not to give special privileges to the poor simply because they're poor. In the context of legal proceedings, we read, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So the idea that there's something intrinsic to being rich, which brings you God's condemnation, or intrinsic to being poor, which brings you God's favor, the rest of Scripture just doesn't bear that out. And uh, Scripture just doesn't allow to believe that. There's obviously more that we need to understand about this passage than that very superficial reading of it. And yet, and yet, there's equally little room for doubt that over and over again in the Bible, God's people are enjoined to be generous to those in need, to the poor, the stranger, and so on. After a few short passages, we read in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. Or again, James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you tells him, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but does not provide for his physical needs, then what good is that? And in practice, in reality, we're in a time when the economy is under pressure. We could be at the threshold of a difficult time for many people, especially during the coming winter, with prices of fuel and food climbing much faster than most people's incomes. We do need, as individuals and as a church, to take these responsibilities seriously. We can't just ignore them. There are many practical ways here in WEM in which we can do that. For example, there is a local food bank we can support and which we support through the church. There is the uh, ministry of the Ark amongst the homeless in Shrewsbury. There are notices about these things on the uh, back of every week's in touch. So there are ways in which we can help in practical ways, both by giving and by volunteering. And nothing that I'm going to say during the remainder of this sermon 
um, excuses us as individual citizens and indeed as individual Christians from getting involved in that to the extent that we're able to. But moving on through the passage, um, what should the rich man in, uh, in Luke chapter 16 have done? Um, next, uh, um, uh, next slide, please. Uh, one more. There we go. What should the rich man have done? Should he have simply given up everything that he had and given it all, given it all away to the poor? There are scriptures that suggest perhaps yes. Matthew 19, 21. Jesus was talking to a rich young man, and he said, If you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And there have been people throughout the history of the church, Francis of Assisi being one of them who springs to mind, who have been called to exactly that. And yet it hasn't been the standard practice at any time in church history. Not even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the great passage that in, 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 in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians about love, faith, hope, and love, Paul lists giving all I possess to the poor as being one of the things that would gain him nothing if done without love. Next uh, button. Thank you, yes. Um, now, when it comes to selling possessions and uh, um, giving to the poor, sorry, Richard, one more, uh, one more thing on the, uh, there we are, on, this, on, on, the, on the PowerPoint. Um, many of you will think of the account in Acts chapter 4 and 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. This is the couple who sold land, didn't give all of it to the um, disciples, the apostles in Jerusalem, and as a result, they were both struck dead. But let's just have a little look at that passage. Not for too long, I hope, but let's have a little look at it. Um, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4, um, we're in a period when thousands of people from all over the Mediterranean had been converted in Jerusalem immediately after Pentecost, and they were staying on, no doubt, much longer than they'd originally intended to stay in Jerusalem for, in order to listen to the apostles' teaching. Now, in verse 32, we read... The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds, uh, and the proceeds of them, of what was sold, was laid at the apostles' feet and distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We go on into chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she said, yes, for that much. But Peter said to her, 
How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So it's clear that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they hadn't given all of their money away to the church. It was the fact that they claimed that they had had, but in fact they were lying about it. Peter is perfectly clear about that in chapter 5 and verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Anyway, we need to get back to Luke chapter 16, or I'll be in danger of failing the text test. This is the most important test for any preacher to pass, apart from being doctrinally sound and basically comprehensible. The test is, if I hadn't known what his text was, would I have been able to work it out from what he actually said? So, back in um, Luke chapter 16. In fact, we only have one verse in it that tells us what the rich man was doing before he died. Namely, um, verse 19, we read that he was clothed in purple and fine linen and that he feasted sumptuously or lived luxuriously every day. And then verse 20 tells us he paid no attention to the presence of Lazarus at his gate. Now, the implication is that he liked to make an ostentatious show of his wealth. That's what it meant to be dressed in purple. Purple cloth, um, the purple dye was very expensive. Purple cloth was very much the preserve of the wealthy. Presumably, he didn't wear it when he was around in his own house with nobody to see him. So he wore it because he wanted everybody to see how wealthy he was. And the fact that he did this every day um, suggested perhaps that he didn't keep the Sabbath. But day in, day out, whether it was a Sabbath or not, he continued to flaunt his wealth around. His own household staff would never have any respite from the constant entertaining, and so on. And meanwhile, while all of this was going on, Lazarus, Lazarus was denied, not only a share in what was placed on the table, but even a share in what fell off the table. And later in Hades... A few, uh, a few verses um, um, further down, when, uh, uh, when he appealed to Abraham to send Lazarus, and incidentally, don't you find that sense of entitlement amazing? There he is in Hades, and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers to come to this place. Not let me out to go and warn them, but send Lazarus. The, 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 it gives you an idea of the... Um, um, the personality of the man, his sense of entitlement, and, uh, and so on. But nevertheless, what Abraham tells him is that they have Moses and the prophets, and they should know what to do from what Moses and the prophets said, and therefore what the rich man should have done would be to follow the, the law, follow the teaching laid down in Moses and the prophets. Well, what was that? Uh, if we had the time... I'd like nothing better than to dig into the Old Testament economic model in great detail. I'm fascinated by economics. Some of you know I dabble in politics a bit. It's, uh, I could spend hours on this sort of thing. I promise we won't spend hours about it this evening. But uh, um, if you move over to the next slide. Um, we already saw earlier in Deuteronomy that the Old Testament economy was much more complex and sophisticated than we assume it was with mining and industry as well as agriculture. And likewise, if you like, its social safety net was quite a bit more sophisticated than we often give it credit for. Without taking too deep a dive, 
the main elements were these. Um, PowerPoint, please, Richard. First of all, the absolute security of tenure over your family's inheritance. No family could become destitute because no family could ever lose the apportionment of land that its ancestor was given to it when the people first arrived in the land. The land could be rented out. It could be sold. It could be used as security to borrow against. But come what may, every 50 years, in the Jubilee year, all debts would be cancelled and all land that had been sold would revert to its original owners. So the idea that a family could become destitute and left landless or with no means of supporting itself over generations to the extent that people kept the law, that simply couldn't happen because every family was guaranteed its stake in the wealth of the land through the land that the family owned. Secondly, there was absolute security for an individual from becoming enslaved. If somebody found themselves in poverty and they were able to work, they were in fact able to sell themselves into servitude, a little bit like the indenture system that used to happen back in the 18th century when people wanted to, if you wanted to emigrate to America, for example, but you didn't have the money to pay for your fare, then what you could do is to take on what was called a contract of uh, um, indenture, where somebody would ship you over there, but once you were shipped over there, you were bound to work for that person for a certain number of years before you'd be able to go and do anything else of your, uh, 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 of your own. Now, there was something akin to that in the Old Testament where you could sell yourself to somebody and then that person who you would sold yourself to would basically take the responsibility from that point onwards for providing for you and your family and you weren't free to leave them and to go and work for somebody else. But all of those arrangements were cancelled regularly every seven years. No one could be deprived of their freedom to work for themselves or to seek another master for any longer than that. So just as your family's property was guaranteed so you couldn't become destitute, so your freedom was guaranteed so you couldn't become enslaved. Furthermore, though, there were opportunities for the poor to gather for their own needs. Um, for example, if you were a farmer um, harvesting your field, the fields weren't to be fully harvested of every last stalk of barley. Vines weren't to be stripped of every last grape and trees of their last olive or fig. Something always had to be left for the poor to be able to gather from themselves. And then finally, um, there was the system of tithing, if you like, the social, of social provision through taxation, as we would call it that. Every year, um, as an Israelite, you would pay three tithes. There was the tithe that went to the priests to maintain the priests and the Levites and the sacrificial system, but also, in effect, they provided a justice service and a health service in various ways. That was one tithe. Then there was a second tithe that you paid from all of your income. And that second tithe, you actually spent it on yourself, but it was the fund which was used to pay for going to the three festivals in Jerusalem, um, Passover, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, in between those two, Pentecost. So your second tithe was put aside in order to make sure that you could afford to take part in the public worship of God. But then thirdly, there was a third tithe, which wasn't actually paid every year, just every three years, specifically for the relief of the poor. And that was to be held locally and distributed by the community. So the system was there, but despite all of that, the 
personal duty of each individual to look out for the poor in their neighborhoods still existed. As Deuteronomy 15, chapter 7 puts it, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hands to him and lend him sufficient for his needs. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. No, if you do that, then he will cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So it's not enough for us to say, I've paid our taxes or I've paid my taxes, let the state look after him. That duty, as I said earlier on, nothing that I'm saying um, excuses us of such a duty to look after those around us. But anyway, so much for the rich man. What about Lazarus? Well, as it happens back in our passage in Luke 19, um, our passage states the fact that Lazarus was carried by angel to Abraham's side in heaven as a simple fact. At no point does the passage tell us in as many words why it was that Lazarus got there. Though, as I have said, the rest of the scripture doesn't allow us to believe that it was simply because he was poor. However, we can ask ourselves how Abraham got to be there. Final point, there we go. How did Abraham get to be there? That's very well documented, and it certainly wasn't because Abraham was poor. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2 says, Abraham was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. When, his, uh, when, when in Abraham's old age, his servant goes to look for a, uh, a wife for his son Isaac, the servant says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become very wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And it is Genesis 15 that tells us everything we need to know. In Genesis chapter 15, before Abraham's son Isaac was born, God comes to him in a vision and says, Fear not, Abraham, or Abram as he was then. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I promised you there'd be an Eliezer before we reached the end. And we re nearly have reached the end. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, offspring, and a member of my household will be your heir. Um, God replies, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able. So shall your offspring be. And verse 6 of, Deuteronomy, of, of, of Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to Abraham for righteousness. It was Abraham's faith, Abraham's believing God, which was counted as his righteousness. And it was that faith that Abraham put in God, that he heard God's word and believed God's word. It was that that got Abraham to heaven. We can, I think, safely assume that it was that which would have got Lazarus to heaven as well, because this is underlined. Romans chapter 4 in one, one place where this, where this passage in Genesis is referred to. James chapter 2 again, where James reminds us that the faith that saved Abraham wasn't a mere intellectual ascent, but actually showed itself in his subsequent actions. But in Abraham's case, his subsequent actions weren't giving all his wealth away, but being ready to give away his son Isaac, the son of promise, the son that God had given him, which is in turn a picture of how we are saved by the fact that God gave his son, Jesus, up for us. So, 
I think there's one uh, final um, thing to come up at the bottom there we are. Salvation is only ever by faith. True of Abraham, true of Lazarus, true of us. We can't duck our responsibilities, but if we want to be right with God, whether we're rich or poor, then what we need is faith in the saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf.